Hey, it's Tim Van Meegan. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here and good yeah. to see you. Happy Friday. Um, so, uh, so our topic for today, you, you, you sent something over to me that was pretty interesting and it was the, um, the 10 ways to, to see if you're leaking EBITDA in your company. A couple were kind of eye openers. And, uh, as we were just talking before we got started here, um, kind of with some of those black swan things that maybe after you hear about it, I'm like, Oh, of course, sure. I mean, you know, <laughs> of course I knew about that. But, you know, before that you're, you're ignoring exactly. these things. And so I, I'd wonder, uh, if maybe we start with kind of some of the things you're doing at ProAction Group to sort of what led up to why you guys put this together and they maybe we'll hit some of the, the top ones that yep. make sense. Sure. Yeah. Total pleasure. And, you know, part, part of how I think about this is, you know, I do a lot of reading. I think we all do, right? And there's lots of great books and topics about how to run a company well, how to lead well. Um, and this this article and this topic is really almost about, it's like the smelling salts. It's, a, it's kind of the opposite topic, which is how do you know when you're not aligned mm-hmm. or not uh, efficiently or effectively running your company? How do you know when there's an issue? You know, like the, what what are the symptoms that? And and here's the thing: we get used to stuff, right? Yeah. If you're used to your arm hurting, when it hurts, you don't really think to go to the doctor to have it looked at, because you know what? It's been like that for years. And I think the same thing's true in our companies. We often get used to things that are painful that are really indicators of a, of a bigger issue, a bigger problem. That's what led to this idea of writing this article. Yeah. Oh yeah. I really like that idea that you're, we, we live, we live with pain, you get used to it and you find ways around it. You just sort of accept like, you know, this is my life now, whatever this thing is. And, you know, opening yourself exactly. up to the idea that you could actually fix that chronic pain. Uh, that's really good. Exactly. Uh, well, tell me yeah. about what, what yeah, are so, some of the stories from some of those top ones. I know the one that really jumped out to me that maybe I'll, I'll start with is this idea that let's start with if that you one. look at you know, your your eighty twenty rule that um, you know a lot of people if you ask them you know what percentage of your your profits are you able to come from your top customers and people would say you know eighty or ninety percent and and really the answer is surprising it's more like it's one hundred and sixty percent because that bottom twenty is actually right. losing money and I was like oh that makes sense I hadn't really thought about it that way so tell me about how you yes. guys came across that one yep. Yeah, and so so it, it it here's the great news is for virtually everybody listening to this podcast is that the data exists already in your system to do this analysis. It's already there. Um, but what we did was we we uh, just like you said we segmented the company into a few quadrants. High and ba- basically, it's your larger customers versus your smaller customers and your large SKUs or items that you sell or services that you sell and the smaller ones. And we then calculated, and it's pretty, you know, fairly straightforward, the total gross margin that was generated in each of those four quadrants. Mm -hmm. And then you take out, and then we took out the cost of fulfilling those orders. And, you know, here's Like one of the stories that comes up with this all the time is thinking about a customer that you really want to please, but they're not a high volume customer. They're just demanding. Yeah. How many customers do we have that are demanding? But in the end of the day, if we, if we serve them well, I mean, we, we want to serve everybody well, but it's not, it's impeding our ability to serve the customers that actually drive Mm -hmm. our profit. And in this case, you brought it, the, the example you brought up 
this is one where it was an extreme situation. 160% is not normal, but it's very often a hundred, if it, whatever it is, 110, 120%. Yeah, the idea that you're actually of, losing money somewhere else is, is underscored yes. by this idea that some of these are actually more than your, your, your profit reported. Exactly. And, and, you know, one thing, it sounds dramatic and black and white when we talk about it and that, hey, just go fire the customers that don't make sense. And we actually rarely go that path. What we do instead is we need to build our company to serve those core customers and those core services or SKUs where we make our money. Right, right. And everything else, all the rest of it, we're going to serve in a way that doesn't impede that core part of the business. So what does that mean? It means we're going to offer different lead times. We're going to have different policies. They're going to pay the freight. You know, they're, right, going, to, right, they're right, going to right. uh, perhaps wait in line. And certainly we're going to increase the margins. We may end up driving them to another channel or to another supplier, but it's different than outright firing. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because, you know, we, we struggle with that too. And I'm glad you said services too, because I feel like this applies to any, anything you're doing with your product service mix. There are going to be things that are wildly profitable and some things in a way, maybe you feel like you have to offer, uh, and maybe just, just taking the step back to evaluate, you know, do we really have to offer those? And if we do, what's a different way to at least make them profitable enough so that we're not looking at a loss for these things? Um, I've never been a big fan of the exactly. idea of like a loss leader. I feel like that's sort of a myth in a way that um, they really, it's like, you know, you, right. you, whatever, you're, you're losing a dollar on shirts and the guy says, we'll make it up on volume. That old joke. It just it's never, it never works <laughs> yes. out, you know? Yeah. Well, and another way too to think about this, Mike, is the, the difference between the phase early in the company's history where you will take every customer, every dollar of revenue is just mother's milk, right? And but but what happens is companies then evolve to that next phase where they don't need the next order to keep the doors open. Yeah. Right? They're doing way better than that. Now it's about profitability. It's about growth. It's about scaling. And it's an evolution. But you know what? These customers, we've been serving them for years. We're used to it. And and people are, you know, they, it, almost, it, it, it feels right because you've been doing it and you're used yeah. to it. But the, the, the idea here is to take the time, look at the data. So it's, it's just a sober reflection on what we're doing, where we're making money, and when we're where are we giving it yeah. back? You know, um, one of the ones you, that you uh, you mentioned, I'd, I'd be curious about this really sort of manufacturing specific. Maybe is this idea of um, uh, physical inventory versus cycle counting? I thought maybe maybe dig into that a little yes. bit about the value of that. It was a pretty interesting take you had. You know, th this is the first question I often ask when I meet a new prospector or new customer. Is, is I ask them how often they take a full wall-to-wall -wall physical inventory where you shut down the, the business for a weekend to do it, right? And, and I ask them how often, and it's, it's sort of a trick question because whether it's one or 12 a year, it's, if the answer isn't zero, there's a major problem. And, and here's the basic idea on this, and, it, and it's amazing how often this is an issue. But if you are a manufacturing or distribution company and you sort of know what you have, 
That's a major problem. You need to know. And this is completely within our control. I'll never forget a great story on this one. Um, Mike DuBose was a CEO, took, started up at uh, a company. It was an p- auto parts distributor. And like a good CEO, he listened first. He went to a number of the branches and he would ask people, hey, what can I do? What can we do corporate to actually help? You know, what would make your life better? What would make it easier to do your job? And he was talking to a, a, a counter rep, a sales rep who worked the counter at one of the, the, the stores, the branches. He goes, oh, I know exactly what I want. I want a walkie-talkie. And Mike's like, well, okay, well, that's easy. But tell me, why do you want a walkie-talkie? He goes, well, today a customer walks in. They ask me if I have a part. I look it up in the system, see if I have it. And if I had a walkie-talkie, instead of me having to walk in the back to check if we actually have it, <laughs> I could just terrible. call it back and say, hey, Joe, do you see this on the right. shelf? Like, that's another example, like we just talked about on the prior one, where people do workarounds and they get really good at something that they should never, ever have to do in the first yeah. place. And and here's the, the big thing on this. Why do I talk about this when we're talking about leaking EBITDA? Because this is inventory. Inventory isn't on the income statement. But here's the thing. The work you have to do to overcome an inaccurate inventory is costing you money. Mm-hmm. It's, it's costing you money on every single sale. It goes from, like, here's an extreme example. This just happened this week. We did a diligence for a private equity firm looking to buy a company. And we talked to the owner about the COO. And he goes, look, I I need the COO to be doing what he's doing. He's doing a good job. And we said, okay, what's he do? Like, what's an example? And he goes, well, he needs to be there every day. He needs to be on the floor. He knows where all the stuff is. He knows where the inventory is. He knows the recipes for how to make the product. You know, he knows how the machines work. And it was like, you know, that was, he thought that was normal. Like that was a good COO. And when in reality, that should all be stuff that happens and operators on the floor, a supervisor and a scheduler should be able to do all of that. Yeah, that's way too. Without the the COO being involved. Way too in the weeds. And he was forced to because of the system. Didn't have a choice. That's funny because going back your your initial analogy with this this idea that we all get used to that you know that pain in our knee that just sort of is that's just there, and I know on our side of the world in software we we find that a lot of companies run what we call like a shadow system which is near to your point about you know whatever it says on the screen right. I got to go check that uh, you know anytime we find that <laughs> yes. there's like a separate spreadsheet of what's really going market. on or you know yeah. we're not using the CRM I got a pad of paper that tells us what's going it's like oh, wait a second <laughs> that's not how this is all supposed to work. And people just don't, they don't, they're just exactly. used to that. They, they, ex, they don't expect the systems to work. Yes, e- e- exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's so fundamental. Well, and, and tell me about, you know, cause you, you mentioned here about, you know, what, um, uh, you know, a, a, a bank and what the requirement might be around a physical inventory. Uh, how does that play into like, again, this like, expectation of just living with what we think is, is true versus what's really true. Yeah, the the you know, forty years ago, fifty years ago, before the before we had good MRP systems and ERP systems, it was very common. Companies had to take physical inventories. Um, now that's gone away, 
And the reason that people are doing it today is because, and this is kind of the hypothesis or what needs to be checked into, but it's because there's a lack of control on inventory. And you, you know, let me kind of switch over to another mm -hmm. similar topic, which is our suppliers. Yeah. Uh, this is another area where we get used to the current situation. And one of the most powerful, and this, this brings to mind an, another diligence we did for a private equity firm looking to buy a company. This company was doing about $6 million in earnings a year, EBITDA a year. And we found two things, one on sourcing and one on manufacturing, that would drive them to $9 million in EBITDA without changing sales, with changing things that are purely under mm. their control. And it would do nothing but increase, improve quality, on-time delivery, responsiveness, all that good stuff. It's not a cost-cutting thing. Um, but the part on sourcing came down to this. We asked them a question, um, your key supplier, how good are they? They're like, oh, they're phenomenal. Like, that's great. How do you know? Like, what makes you say that? He said, well, one, the product is good. And two, when we call them, they are so responsive. They're on it. They call us right away. Like they're a real partner to us. And I'm like, great. How about the rates? You know, what you're paying? Do you feel like they're competitive? Like, oh, absolutely. I'm like, oh, that's good to hear. How long have you been working with them? They're like, oh, they've been our supplier for like, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And uh, then how do you, how do you know? Like what makes you feel confident that they're giving you a good price? And they looked around like, they wanted to make sure no one was listening because they're <laughs> going to give me the secret. Years. And they said they haven't given us, they haven't given us a price increase in ten wow. years. Like they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah. They never considered the idea that they've been overpaying for ten right. years. And this leads to this basic idea: is we're not fans of spot market and playing suppliers against each other. There's a ton of benefit by negotiating and having a core group of suppliers. But you need to test the market, and you need to negotiate, and there needs to be a clear runway for that supplier. You know, is it three years, two years, five years? That depends on whether it's an inflationary market or a deflationary market. There's things to take into account. But it needs to be conscience, conscious. The supplier needs to know over what period of time they can recruit their investment in you as a customer. But they also have to know that they have to stay good yeah. or they're going they to lose stay the sharp. business yeah. eventually. Yeah, and, and 10 or 15 years is a sharp. long, long, long time. It's it's a long yeah. time. It's a long time. And and we we ended up on that implementation renegotiating. We did a public, yeah. you know, the, the current supplier ended up keeping the business. But that, I, I mentioned that there was a $3 million improvement mm -hmm. in earnings. Uh, a little bit less than half of that came from simply renegotiating their right. pro their contracts with their current suppliers. And that, that half of that, so a million and a half of that has probably been available for many years, right? That could have yes. been a fifteen yep. million dollar windfall over ten years had they been paying attention to that. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, I, I wonder one of the other topics you talk about that I know something we focus a lot about on is is um, understanding your capacity and if you're actually really using all of it. I'm curious, and we've got a couple stories about that. Tell me about how that and any any stories about EBITDA windfalls with that that might be interesting. 
Yeah, ab- yes. So, you know, a lot of times people, when we talk about looking at efficiency and things like that, they say, you know, labor is such a small percentage of the cost of goods sold. Why do you bother looking at that? And the answer is absolutely almost nothing to do with labor itself. We're not going in to reduce labor costs. What we're going in to do is increase throughput. It's about overhead absorption, and it's about additional gross margin, for, especially for companies that are growing. This is really critically important. And I will say 19 times out of 20, when we ask an owner or a CEO, where are you in terms of capacity? They provide an answer like, oh, yeah, we're at like 70% of capacity. And how do you know? And they're like, well, you know, we could probably do more than we're doing now. And, you know, they have a general feel, but they don't know. And here's the problem with not knowing. It's it's because it could be dramatically different than what you believe. We we did a project for um, a Chicago area chocolate company. Great company. Wonderful, wonderful company. And they thought they were at capacity and were actually thinking about building a new factory. Mm. We did a study to look at their actual capacity and where they were in terms of that. What we found out, long story short, was they were utilizing 39% of their capacity when they ran. Okay. In six months, we helped them to get to 89%. It was a 50-point increase. And what that ended up doing was their cost to process a pound of chocolate went from 12.5 cents to two, 12 cents to two and a half cents. Wow. Fun, and, and, you know, lead times were, and here's from a capacity standpoint, the, what it meant was they had twice, dub, essentially double the capacity that they thought they had. And they, because they didn't know the, the, the real, the, the actual variables that led to their yeah. total capacity, they didn't measure those. And, you know, that's so the indicator here is if you if you don't know or if the person you talk to running the company doesn't know what their capacity is and where they are, if it's more of a general yeah. feel, that's an indicator. There's a very good potential that they don't know that they sure. it's way off. And the there's so many examples. This is how you take a company from 12 percent EBITDA margins to 19% EBITDA margins. It's when you realize, because if you think about that, they could do 50% more sales with the same labor and the same overhead. Yeah. That's what we helped them figure yeah, out. Going back to the next, this idea about like things we're living with, do you yeah. remember what were some of the things that they were living with in terms of capacity and throughput that they just sort of has, has, had accepted as this is how things are, and yet that was only 39%? Yep. So they were accepting things like uh, they had to build inventory to fill current orders. They would, you know, run each product for a week because of changeover times. And because they had to build inventory because if if something happened to a machine and it went down, they still had to fill orders. Right. So one of the things they did is they built inventory to handle sales if something goes wrong. Ah. That's one major symptom. Yeah. Inventory is another great topic that when, you know, understanding how much you have and like one of the things we enjoy doing is 
we when we go look at a company, we recalculate how much inventory they actually need to run mm-hmm. their company based on demand patterns and lead times and capacities. And when it's interesting is when they have two times or three times the amount they need. I'm not talking 20% yeah. more, 30%. I'm talking 200%, yeah. 300%. Yeah. Because that's when they're they're using inventory to cover up the pain of another yeah. process. That I agree with that. I feel like I, I, I've seen that too. It's like if you – like that's a good symbol, sign. If you've got two or three times inventory mm-hmm. that you need, you're definitely covering up for something somewhere downstream. We need to figure out yes. what that is because you don't need yes. all that inventory. Everyone has too much inventory. And you know, not that everything has right. to be made to order, but I think that you can get a lot more lean if you pay attention to those things. Exactly. The closer you can get to being able to make to order, the right. better. And it, it, it's one of the Even, it's, that it's may the not dream, always right? be the goal, but it's good. Let me say this, in your experience, like, it's the dream. And, how, yeah. how many companies get there or close enough? Like you said, you got the chocolate company in 89%. Um, what was their inventory like when you got them uh, closer to that, that capacity level? But inventory went down by over 50% yeah. uh, after that change. And, and it's actually kind of an ironic thing, but we've had a couple of CFOs get frustrated because their borrowing base yeah. was based on inventory. <laughs> right. And when we obviated the need right, to keep sure. it. Another crutch. So you got to warn yeah. people. You got to warn people that, hey, we're going to be reducing inventory, not because we're going on some, you know, belt tightening campaign, but because we're not going to yeah, need it. Yeah, you're not going to need it. Right. And uh, we're, yeah. Yeah. The It's, it's, a, it's a great thing. But no, that... Uh, you know, we've had some where it, it, it's also gone down in, in areas by as much as 80% reduction. But that, that yeah, yeah, it's really just, and, and you know what, we've had other examples where we've actually increased inventory, but there was a real, it was designed. It was, it was not this unconscious. Yeah, you're not covering up for you know, building of inventory. purposeful. Yeah. We're not covering yeah. up. Right. Um, right. I, I wonder, as a, as a, a final topic here, um, that's that's totally different. Uh, I'd love to hear you talk about how tribal knowledge uh, can be a source of uh, EBITDA linking. Yeah, it's not. Uh, I'm going to be this. I'm going to parse the words here a little bit. It's not tribal knowledge that's a problem. Tribal knowledge is awesome. Right. You want people in your company that know how to run your company. The problem is reliance on tribal knowledge. Okay. Big difference. If, you know, like here's an example, we had a client that was a bakery and they lost a significant portion of their workforce in a very short period of time. And, uh, for reasons outside of their control and they, it was a brutal process because they relied on things like on the job training for teaching new people how to work on a line, okay? And it was a very technical process where you're, you're working with, you know, organic, you know, ingredients that are different, that you just have to watch it. You, know, you have to know how to bake to a degree to do it. So they didn't have any good, the, the standard work was, uh, did not exist. In other words, the supervisors knew how to set up the line. There wasn't a detailed, clear, graphic set of instructions that virtually, well, anyone with the basic training could follow to set yeah. it up. It, it's the 
it's it that that's the problem and the you know this is one of those things that you can go for years and you don't really have a problem if you don't have a lot of turnover yeah. um and you have the same people back year after year you don't really notice a problem like it works everybody's happy they know what to do the problem comes in where something out of your control like covid or like you know um the immigration issues where the government will come in and, you know, force you to let a, a, a large number of people go because they don't like the documentation that goes with it. I'm not making any comments about the issue. Yeah, sure. I'm purely looking at it from the perspective that it is what it is. And you could lose a number of people that you were reliant mm-hmm. on. And being able to run your factory or run your company with people, with new people coming in, that's a risk mitigation yeah. technique. That's insurance on not being shut mm-hmm. down. Okay. Um, and, and, and here's the, even the best part of this, Mike, is this is not some thing where you go and invest $2 million in a new system to, to not rely on tribal knowledge. This is doing things that you should be doing anyway. This is all good yeah. stuff. This is like brushing your teeth in the morning. Yeah. Okay. It's a good onboarding process. It's standard work. It's standard work for supervisors and leaders. Mm-hmm. It's ongoing training. It's, it's setting up these, these, um, uh, 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 you know, behaviors and processes when it's not a problem. Yeah. When it's not a problem. Or it's a problem. Is, yeah. The thing about, yeah, yeah. If if you if you take care of it, it's it, and you know what, the 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 brushing your teeth metaphor it probably works because if you take care of your teeth every day, yeah. you know, then you go to the dentist, it's no big deal. But if you don't take care of it, then you go and then it's like you've got to do all this heroic stuff, mm-hmm. and you got to you know have procedures done and surgeries and all this crazy stuff. It's like the same thing is true here with with uh, tribal knowledge. Yeah. If you get ahead of it, it doesn't cost you a lot of money, and it's all good stuff yeah. to do anyway. And I will say that one of the things that we've seen, and we, we've actually done some of this work for clients, is um, you know, I think traditionally some of that kind of translating tribal knowledge to something solid that you could pass along has been a written thing that's sort of a giant yes. pain to do. And and honestly, um, yep. the the prevalence. I mean, everyone's got a cell phone. Uh, doing video training, like showing someone how to do something. Yes, um, we've done a lot of that lately, yes. and it's so much easier. One of, one of the yep. things I always think about is, you know, um, you know, it's easier to be an editor than a writer. And if I can just turn on a turn on a camera and say, okay, show me how to use this machine, or how did you learn how to do, it? and just yes. have them talk through it, because even the other thing is that in written written documentation, there's always that step from six to seven. You're like, step. well, how do they get there? What I missed? What's in between? When you video right. it, you see that oh, they right. flip the switch exactly. first or whatever it was. So that's actually a really easy way to get that stuff out there. And then it lives forever and it's it's digestible. And to your point about onboarding, it could be something you just can get to in a library and, and experience. Yes. Yeah. So many good things. Yeah. So many good things. Hey, listen, so this is, uh, as always, a great informative uh, conversation. Um, I know I grabbed a couple of things that were pretty interesting uh, and a pleasure to have you on as always. And uh, we'll do it again in a few months. Uh, so get those top 10 lists together. I'll include a link to your, uh, your article. I'll get the next too. one going. Thank you. Thank you. It was Mike. a pleasure. Talk to you soon, Tim. Great talking to you. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. You made it all the way to the end. Thanks. 
Don't forget to subscribe and like this video to hear more content just like this.